If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Philemon. We're going to continue this morning to look at uh, this short little epistle, single chapter, personal letter written by Paul to Philemon, who was hosting the church of Colossae in his home, and who also happened to be a slave owner, the owner of Onesimus, with whom he had had an apparent falling out. Onesimus, at some point in time, stole from Philemon and fled, and through God's amazing providence and direction, ended up in Rome with Paul and Epaphras and Timothy and others, and was told about Jesus Christ and God saved him and then sent him back. Unbelievable. He didn't send him back as a crusader or one with a political agenda, but he sent him back to be a slave, but a different kind of slave, a Christian slave, one who was given over to Christ and who would serve Christ even in the context of one of the most awful social constructs ever imagined by man. It's very significant, and we cannot lose the punch of the facts in this matter. They are dramatic, and they are compelling. And we have to keep that in mind as we are listening to Paul appeal to Philemon to do something with Onesimus that would go against every fiber of his body, to do something that would be counter to what he was even entitled to do as a citizen and slave owner who had rights relative to how to treat Onesimus and what to demand of him and how to even treat him or how to even perhaps deal with him from the standpoint of punishment, which he had every right to do. And so Paul, appealing to Philemon on the basis of his relationship with Jesus Christ and with the exhortation of the congregation, directs him in a different direction, a gospel direction. And so we see here a gospel resolution, a gospel application, a living out of the reality of one's commitment and conversion to Christ in real time, in a real way. Let's pray, then we'll read this short epistle. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for our new members, John and Priscilla. We are so grateful, Lord, that you have brought them to us. Thank you for your good providence in doing that. We are Uh, always amazed at how you build and keep your church and how you edify us with other um, uh, redeemed people, Um, people we don't know, haven't known for most of our lives, are now here part of this great family, and we're so grateful for that. Thank you, Lord, for loving us in that way and for loving them in that way. It truly speaks to me in that you care about us, that you are concerned about us, that Um, You do bring people that you do direct individual believers to and into churches um, because you love the church, and that's where you want your people to be. So thank you, Lord, for that. We are happy today. Our hearts are made light and joyful because of this great addition to our family here at Community Bible Church. Lord, thank you for this little letter that was written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and by your good providence and will has been preserved, and now we have it here in front of us in Beloit, Ohio. Why on earth? Why do we have the letter? 
Help us to better understand its meaning, its purpose, its content, so that we can glorify you in our conduct and our behavior within the body of Christ, within the fellowship of the redeemed, as saints who are committed to Christ and his cause. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much, and thank you, Lord, for loving us first. We are overwhelmed by that fact. We're grateful that you have graciously given to us Jesus, and may our commitment to him be reflected in our gratitude for what he has done for us through his finished work, in whose name we pray. Amen. Philemon, I keep wanting to say chapter 1, but why, right? Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, pay attention to that opening phrase because it's so important. Paul is not a prisoner of Rome. He's not a prisoner of the emperor. He is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He is exactly where God wants him. He is where God has placed him for the purpose of being able to propagate from all places the gospel, to write letters. Um, you know, Paul perhaps may have wondered at one point in time, why on my earth am I in prison? I ought to be out preaching. And, and the Lord wanted him there so he could write letters that would be preserved through all the ages for the churches to read, even here in Beloit, Ohio, as it sits open on your lap this morning. He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's writing to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, Philemon's wife, and to Archippus, most likely Philemon's son, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. There again we see that that. that ascription to the means by which he is made a prisoner. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Notice what Paul does, how he personalizes and how he makes reference to Onesimus here, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you, Christ Jesus greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ 
be with your spirit. Well, last week we kind of dealt with this opening phrase, the opening verses, verses one through three. We began to unpackage the meaning of the verses four through seven. And today I want to go ahead and continue with that endeavor and focus on some issues that are important for us to keep in mind um, that, that we should be mindful of as we are looking at the meaning and purpose of this letter. So we know that Paul in verse 4 begins to talk about how he prays and a prayer, in fact, for Philemon. He says that he thanks God always for, for Philemon, making mention of him, that is Philemon, in Paul's personal prayers. Now keep in mind, too, that this letter is written directly to Philemon, but it is being read to the entire congregation. Tychicus or someone else in the congregation, perhaps even Philemon's own son, Archippus, who perhaps was serving in the role of the pastor of the church at that point in time, is reading this out loud, which is compelling to me because it speaks to the idea that these types of issues become body life issues. They become part of the fellowship. They become an issue that has to be addressed within the body of the church, that is, those who are part and parcel of this gathering in Colossae. And the reason for that is because the lesson to be learned is that Paul wants to demonstrate through Philemon that the gospel is effective to change people, that the gospel really does work, that the gospel, in fact, achieves and accomplishes its intended pur- purpose, and that is to make a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's important. And so as Philemon is 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 being addressed, the rest of the congregation is watching and listening to the exhortation and being reminded of what it means to be joined with Christ, keeping in mind that the issue of union with Christ is of paramount importance to Paul, and Paul says that our union with Christ is demonstrated by how we conduct ourselves as the redeemed of Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, we're reminded that we are indeed tailored, we're fitted with a new nature, we are new creation, and by and through that we then are called to do certain things. Indeed, he reminds us that we are the elect of Christ, and as such, then we are going to exhibit certain virtues that then cause us to behave and act and conduct ourselves in a particular way, and in particular, even in these difficult circumstances, especially in these kinds of difficult circumstances within the body. Clearly, Onesimus is back, He's come there along with Tychicus. He brings this letter. The letter is read. So he's there. Philemon's there. The body's there. They know about Onesimus. They probably know that he fled, that he stole from Philemon. They're probably in shock that he's there. They would never expect to see a slave come back. That was not the norm. That was not the rule. It was the exception. And significantly, too, that as the redeemed of Christ, Christ himself sends through the instruction of Paul, sends Onesimus back to Philemon. Today, we would most likely come up with some type of political movement to attach to Onesimus and make him the poster child of some agenda. And we wouldn't send him back because in our minds, in the construct of social justice and other things in cultural norms, we would not do that because we're not going to do that. But here he goes back. And it's not just a short trip either. Remember, it's a long ways back from Rome to Colossae. 
And so he goes back, and he comes back, and he comes back a different person. Indeed, he comes back, as we will find out later, useful. Formerly useless, but now he is useful. Isn't it wonder how the Holy Spirit transforms a person and makes them a new creation? Who wants to go back to slavery? Now think about that for a minute. I want you to think about the, the compelling nature of that narrative. You've got Onesimus with Tychicus going all the way back to Colossae, not completely clear in his own mind what Philemon is going to do to him, but he goes back. He goes back because he loves the Lord Jesus Christ and he wants to demonstrate to Philemon that he indeed is a new creation in Christ Jesus. That is significant. So don't lose the context of the epistle. Paul here then is praying for Philemon and he demonstrates his love for him in that he does pray for him. I thank my God always, speaking to the frequency by which he is bringing up Philemon's name before the Lord, making mention of you, Philemon, in my prayers. He cares about them. That would be significant to Philemon to know that the apostle Paul, who is in prison, is praying for him. Our prayers are an encouragement to each other, and it's perfectly fine for us to let other people know that we are indeed praying for them and to do so in a meaningful way, to thank people, to thank the Lord for the people that God has brought into your life, to thank the the Lord for the manner by which he has providentially woven your life into the fabric of other people's lives. There's a purpose and a reason and a plan for that, and God does not act arbitrarily. And so Paul is rejoicing over the fact that He knows Philemon, and he knows of Philemon through Epaphras, and he knows of his witness. He speaks to that issue, and he knows that Philemon is a brother in Christ. And so verses 5 and 6 begin to explain to us why it is that Paul feels the way that he does about Philemon and what he's going to begin to do then with Philemon. So let's look at this. These two verses here, or this one sentence made up of two verses is a little bit challenging grammatically and structurally, but there's, there, there's a way to understand it, and I want to help you try to do that this morning. Paul says in verse 5, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have, and again, whenever you see the word you, you can plug Philemon in, so I can, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you, Philemon, have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. So the, the Cliff Notes version of what this verse is speaking to is the idea of faith, genuine faith, working through love, okay? So if you, want the, if you want the synopsis, if you want the short sentence version of what this is about, that's what it's about. There's a, there's a grammatical tool that's used, a, a, a literary tool that's often used in the, in the Bible, and by Paul in particular, called a chiasm. And it's a means by which an issue is emphasized. And if you wanted to chart this out, it kind of is an, it it would be an A, B, B, A. So you would have an A with an idea and then two sub-ideas, B and B, and then A again reaching back to the idea, the general idea again. And we have that here as well. And so what Paul is doing in this is that he's, he's emphasizing something by the structure of the verse. What he wants to emphasize is that at the core of what is happening and what he's going to call Philemon to do, at the core is Philemon's faith in Christ, which gives rise to his love for the other believers in the church in Colossae. 
So at the core is faith in Christ, okay? Um, that's, that's something that's significant. So that's the two B's. Philemon's faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. The consequences of that is that it reaches out to the external to the other saints. His love then is expressed to the saints because of his faith in Jesus Christ. That's basically how we understand verse 5. So what Paul is doing is this. Paul is saying that if you are a believer, if God has saved you, one of the things that's going to happen is that you're going to demonstrate the reality of that by how you love the other redeemed, how you love the saints. In verse 6, he's going to even tease that out a little bit more to demonstrate that there's also something that drives and binds people together. He, de he departs from this chiasm-type uh, structuring, but again, it's going to be basically the same idea. So again, this is faith working through love. My faith in Christ, my love for Jesus Christ, is demonstrated in my love for other believers. Don't we know this from, who, who, who knows where we can find this same principle? There's, a, there's another little epistle that's been written by John, 1 John, right? He talks about the idea that loving the believe, other believers is a genuine demonstration of a true conversion. Because only you, that, that's the only way you can do it. You can only love other people, that agape kind of love, if you are a believer. So Paul is making basically the same point again. Faith working through love is your kind of synopsis short version of verse 5. He's heard of his love and the faith which he has toward the Lord Jesus, and as a consequence that flows out into his relationship with these people, which is being demonstrated. He's offered his home. Keeping in mind that that would be of no small matter back in that day. To be openly identified as a Christian was risky business. Remember, Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel. Others are there with him. It's not a popular thing because it stands in stark contrast to what is being offered, the cult of worshiping the emperor and referring to the emperor as a deity and a god and a whole litany of other things that were Christians were being called to do, and the known persecution of Christians at this point in time in church history. So it's a big deal. His love for the redeemed and Colossi causes him to open up his home at his own risk of perhaps being persecuted and ostracized. He's a businessman, apparently enough, well enough off that he has a home that he can open up and that he has slaves. He owns people. He's bought them. So, his love trumps all of those types of obstacles. And then Paul says in verse 6, And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Now, I love this verse. And I like, again, the way the, the manner in which Paul is praying. Paul, Paul is ultimately saying here that that not only are you loving the other ones, and I rejoice in that because of your faith in Christ, but the fellowship of your faith is effective, and I want it to become even more effective 
as you grow in the knowledge of all good things which are associated with the work and person of Jesus Christ is basically the gist of that. If I was to paraphrase verse 6, it would sound this way. I pray for you that your active participation in Christ's life among his people, which is yours through faith, may prove productive as you dwell in a constantly growing knowledge and experience of every good thing which is in you for the glory of Christ. So look, look, think about this. So what Paul is saying is this. He is praying for Philemon for his active participation, demonstrable. So when Paul, Paul is wanting Philemon, he is actually praying. And I want you to think about the content of this prayer. This is remarkable. Paul's prayer harkens back to what he was doing for the church in Colossae when we, when we go back and look at Colossians 1.9. Let's go back for a moment because that's a good reminder. And again, it's a good reminder to us as to how we too ought to be praying. Significantly is what we're not told in regards to the content of the prayer. We know that he is thankful for Philemon, that he rejoices that he is known, that he is a brother in Christ. But he also then prays in a manner that is consistent with what he called the church in Colossae to do and how he reminded them of how he was praying for them. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, that is their faithfulness, their love and their hope and their, their, their love of the things of Christ, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with what? The knowledge. There's that word. It's the exact same Greek word in verse 9 as it is in Philemon. Verse 6. So we know what that word means that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, there's that language, this word knowledge. Notice the content of the prayer. You want to know how to pray for the person sitting next to you or the person sitting behind you or in front of you? There you have it. There you have it. Keeping in mind, too, the personal deprivations that had taken place at this point in time in history for these people were significant. Let's not lose sight of the fact that Colossae was an economic decline. The trade routes had been changed, so they weren't being used as often within the context of the Roman Empire. The red fabric that they had marketed and sold so well was no longer in high demand. And in all likelihood, there had been an earthquake that was very devastating in this region at approximately the same time. Life was not easy. But notice that Paul's prayer is not focused on those temporal things, but rather on the spiritual and eternal. And what he wants with respect to the why he's praying the way he is, is for a real demonstration of gospel transformation in people's life, and in particular, in Philemon. That's a big deal. You and I should be praying that way for each other. So he says, if, again, going back to this idea of paraphrasing, so as you look at this, the verses and the words, I pray for you, Philemon, that your active participation in Christ's life, 
Our union with Christ is real and vibrant. It's a joining together. This idea of the fellowship that he refers to, I pray that the fellowship of your faith, the, 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 the manifestation of it and the context of your living and acting like a Christian. So I pray for you that your active participation in Christ's life among his people, you're with his people. These are not your people, Philemon. They may be meeting in your home, but they don't belong to you. They belong to the Lord. That's significant. And so I pray for you, Philemon, that your active participation in Christ's life among his people, which is yours through faith, you're there because of what Jesus Christ has done and you're resting in his finished work. He then says, I want this to be proven productive. May the reality of that prove productive as you dwell, as you work, as you interact with these other people in a constantly growing knowledge and experience of every good thing which is in you for the glory of Christ. Paul basically says that God has saved you, God has changed you, God has transformed you, he's placed you with another group of believers in Colossae, and I want you to demonstrate the reality of that as you grow, that you would prove productive, that you would prove to be the genuine deal. Kind of harkens back to Paul's exhortation in Philippians chapter 1. In, in the first part of chapter 1, he talks about the fake and the genuine, that you would be sincere. That was a prayer for Paul too, for the believers there in Philippi to prove the genuineness of your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't be, don't be the fake pottery that's been waxed back together. And if you hold it to the light, you can see it's not genuine. But be the real deal. Be genuine. So for, for Paul, he is saying that someone in the midst of believers, such as yourself, Philemon, is going to demonstrate the reality of your faith in Jesus Christ by your love for these believers and by your growing in the knowledge of of Jesus Christ, which is going to then tease out the good things that are in you, the good things that have been given to you. What are the good things that have been given to you? I have a place to go to get the answer. Where is it? It's in the Bible. Where is it? Wait for it. It's in Colossians. Where at in Colossians? It's in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. And what does Paul remind us of? Again, as it relates to who we are in Jesus Christ, as the elect of God, as the beloved of God, Reaching back into that Old Testament covenant language, he says that I have now, as the redeemed of Christ, what? A heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I also then understand that the manifestation of those types of virtues play themselves out in the idea of forbearing and forgiving because that's what Jesus Christ did. And when I do that, it demonstrates a genuine love that brings about a unity within the body of Christ. It then allows the peace of Christ to reign and rule within the body of Christ. As the word of God richly manifests itself to us as we worship and work with each other and encourage each other within the, with, with the word. There's your summary. So what he is saying to Philemon is that I want these things to be evident. They have to be real. And I am praying. 
I am praying that the Holy Spirit causes these things to be manifested. He says, may prove productive as you dwell in a constantly growing knowledge and experience of all these virtues, all these things that you're now able to do, which is in you. These virtues are given to you not so you're more affable and likable and approachable and and lovable, but because they then reflect what? The glory of Christ. This is really quite amazing. It's quite remarkable what Paul is doing here. And he's interjecting all of this into an incredibly tense socioeconomic cultural situation. He doesn't come up with a political solution. He doesn't cause, he doesn't say to Philemon, I want you to go down to the local legislature and I want you to submit a petition and a referendum on how slaves ought to be treated. I want you to abolish slavery in Colossae, Philemon. End it. No, he doesn't even touch it. He sends Onesimus back, go back and be a slave, but this time be a Christian slave because you are a Christian, you can do things differently. And Philemon, I'm anticipating too, is going to receive you as a brother who he will have forever as we see later on in the epistle. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see how the gospel's at work? So you take the most offensive social construct and you cram it into the gospel hole. Wow. That's what's going on. And so Paul's prayer is designed to bring about the manifestation of that. He wants to see Philemon act like he knows the virtues that have been described in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and following. That's what's going on here. He's going to remind Philemon that in Colossians, he says to him, keep in mind, there's neither, there's neither free nor slave anymore in Christ because Christ is all. And so, as a consequence of that, you see then that, that Paul is, is, is pushing and, and by by revealing to Philemon the content of his prayer. I like this. He, he, he doesn't say it. This is kind of clever. He doesn't just write it out. But what he says to Philemon is that this is how I'm praying for you. That's clever. Paul could have just given Philemon a list. I want you to do A, B, and C and do it now. Paul even says it later in the epistle, I can speak as one with authority. I can come to you three ways. I'm either going to come to you as an apostle and bash you over the head with that, or I'm going to do it because I'm old and you have to respect your elders, or because I'm a prisoner, I'm going to play the emotion card. I'm in prison, do this for me. That's not what happens. He reveals to Philemon his heart for him, but he also reveals to him that he is praying that the Holy Spirit manifest the reality of his conversion in the manner by which he demonstrates the presence of the virtues described in chapter 3. That's exactly what's happening here. So, not to go back and re-preach Colossians chapter 3, but how important are those virtues? They're very real. Of course, we don't always don't do them perfectly. We fail in them miserably. We have a God that is not only forgiving but gracious in that long-suffering with us that way. So grateful for that. And so 
understanding this then, the idea being that these good things are going to come out. I like this idea. These good things are going to come out of that fertile faith soil and sprout into real virtues that people can see and touch and feel and, and, and know are, for, are, are genuine. That's so good. Peter does basically the same thing where he talks. We can go there for a moment. Let's look at uh, um, 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the what? Knowledge. There it is again. Knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him, there it is again, who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, this is like Paul with Philemon, in your faith, there's that fertile soil of faith, have these virtues present. In your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying those who are truly born again are going to demonstrate these virtues, these good things come out of you because of what God has done and for his glory. That's what's happening. So, Paul emphasizes that and he wants that to be real for Philemon. So he's praying for him in that way. Verse 7, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So he's saying, he's affirming, after he tells Philemon what he's been praying about, he affirms for Philemon that he understands that these virtues are real. He's heard of these things from the Paphras and perhaps even from Onesimus himself. I have come to have much joy. It is a joyful thing to see these virtues demonstrated in the life of another believer. We rejoice in that. And comfort. Paul is being comforted. He's in prison and he's hearing about Epaphras and his testimony is a joy and comfort to him. Our lives are meaningful in that way to other believers. We hear of other believers doing things and we take great comfort and joy in that, do we not? It affirms in our minds that this is real, that this works, that God is at work, the Lord is at work. And that's significant. Why is this? Because he says the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. They've been encouraged. They've been lifted up. They've been made happy and joyful, and they've been comforted. Not because they had their felt needs met or because of other 
temporal circumstances, but their true joy and comfort comes from seeing the demonstration of the reality of one's conversion and the manner by which that person conducts themselves. That's significant. That's big. That's huge for the church. And where ought this to be the most evident? In the body of Christ. That's ultimately Paul's point. He says, and he is saying, these virtues really ought to be present in the redeemed as they live and interact with each other within the body of Christ. They ought to be present within the world too, but certainly within the church. And that's why the entire congregation is getting to look into this private affair, if you will, between Paul and Philemon, because it's not so private after all, because it affects the body. And he wants the body, the church, to see that the gospel works by the way that Philemon is going to treat Onesimus. Unbelievable. Truly unbelievable. Where was Philemon in the last three, three years? As the church was being torn apart at the seams by every political movement and construct, where were people calling other believers to demonstrate the reality of their conversion by how and they were demonstrating these virtues? Onesimus doesn't go back and claim any rights. Onesimus doesn't go back and say, oh, I'm a Christian, set me free. He goes back anticipating that he's going to be there. He's going to be there. Well, friends, I think the point that Paul makes for us is that the gospel does change people. The natural man receives not the things of God, so we don't anticipate that the world's going to act in a particular way other than how they act. But for Christians, it's different. And I hearken back to those virtues in Colossians chapter 3, and we need to be mindful of them. Again, one of the purposes of the letter is to communicate to the church how to interact and react with each other within the confines and structures of the body of Christ. And I trust that we will all take this to heart and look at this and examine this and pray for each other in this way and, and, and attempt to achieve what Paul is calling Philemon to as well in our own lives. That we would pray for each other, that our active participation in Christ's life here at Community Bible Church, which, we are, which is ours through faith, may prove productive as we dwell in a constantly growing knowledge and experience of every good thing which is in us for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this exhortation that we have from this little epistle, obscure in many respects, perhaps disregarded by some, hated by others, but it's here for a reason. It's here for a purpose. Help us to understand it. Help us to make application of these profound truths. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. And may we now, as we contemplate the wonders of our own salvation, strive to make these virtues a reality to work on them, to, to examine them, to study them, to, to work in our own lives, to make them more evident. May we pray for each other that way. And I pray for myself and this congregation in that way as well, Lord, that what Paul prayed for Philemon would be true for us too here at Community Bible Church in Beloit, Ohio. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your love for us. And most of all, thank you for our salvation in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.